0: Nelson Serrano emigrated from Ecuador to the US in 1964, building a family, a successful business, and in the late 80s joined forces with two partners, George Gonzalez and Phil Dasso. Meanwhile, Phil's son Frank had a side business, trafficking drugs from Miami to New York. A 1996 drug bust left Frank a million dollars in debt to some dangerous characters, which coincided with an unapproved withdrawal. The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com.
1: I won! Yahoo! Private, put down your phone. This is the army! Sarge, High Five Casino is a social casino. It's on your phone, goes wherever you go. I win free spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. I won again! Platoon, present cell phone. High five! High five! Casino! Casino! Win at High five, casino. .com. High five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void are prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details.
2: HighFive Casino. Homes.com
1: knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework.
3: complete terms
0: from the business in that amount causing a rift between the partners then on december 3rd 1997 in the wake of a second drug bust four people were shot and killed at their factory in Bartow, florida frank Dasso his sister diane her husband george as well as george gonzalves Due to the ongoing rift, attention focused on Nelson Serrano, even though he was in Atlanta at the time of the murders. Years of investigation turned up zero evidence against Nelson, so he retired to Ecuador in 2000. But when pressure mounted in Florida, authorities indicted Nelson anyway. Floridian authorities circumvented Ecuador's request for evidence and concerns over the death penalty and instead arranged to have Nelson kidnapped and illegally brought to the U.S. Prosecutors ignored evidence of a multiple-shooter drug hit and instead presented false evidence and an impossible theory of Nelson's guilt that is disproven by video timestamps and the limits of reality. Ultimately, the jury was fooled and sentenced Nelson to death. His attorney, as well as his son Francisco, join us now to share the current status of his case. This is Wrongful Conviction.
4: Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com.
0: Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. I'm your host, Jason Flom. honestly, I don't even know if I'm ready for this episode. It's an international story. And it involves a middle-aged Ecuadorian man named Nelson Serrano, a guy who had no prior record of any kind. I don't even know if he ever had a parking ticket. This is a guy who was a very successful businessman who was illegally kidnapped from Ecuador by the state of Florida. like, And they did it in order so that they could prosecute him for a quadruple murder for which he had an airtight alibi. But as we record this, Nelson Serrano is 83 years old and still on death row in Florida. So without further ado, please allow me to introduce the son of Nelson Serrano, who is its fiercest advocate and a son that I'm sure Mr. Serrano couldn't be more proud of. Francisco Serrano, I'm so sorry you're here today under these circumstances, but thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And joining him is Greg Eisenmenger, who is the attorney for Mr. Serrano and who is fighting tooth and nail to save this man's life while he still has some life left to live. So, Greg, thank you for taking the time to be here with us today. Well, thank you very much for including me. So Nelson Serrano was born in Ecuador in 1938. He was educated at the University of Rosario in Argentina. And was a businessman in his home country before emigrating to the United States way back in 1964, and then becoming an American citizen in 1971. Francisco, tell us about your dad. Sure. In
3: 1964, my father came here with a few dollars in his pocket and his wife to be, my mother. They went to New York, got married, found a job as a draftsman. Little by little, in this world of engineering. He made a name for himself over his designs. He got picked up by one of the biggest companies in material handling at the time. And little by little, climbed the ladder in different companies till he formed his own in 1984.
0: I mean, this sounds like one of those really beautiful immigrant success stories. And it was until this insanity came to pass. Nelson started a company right? His own company, Garment Conveyor Systems, it was called. And he partnered with another company called Erie Manufacturing Cooperative, which was started by Phil Dasso and George Gonzalez. And in the late 1980s, the three men decided to become business partners, equal shareholders in each company. And they moved both businesses from New York to Bartow, Florida. And after the relocation, you started working there as well, Francisco, and things really started to take off, right? He took their
3: business from barely scratching up to a million dollars a year in sales going past 9 million within a few years so everything was going great but then uh, things went downhill from there
0: and things went downhill in a profoundly terrifying way which brings us to Nelson's business partner's son Frank Dasso, who had also come down from New York to join the family business, starting at 45000 a year with the promise of moving up in the business. So it seems that instead of waiting for that to pan out, Frank got involved in drug trafficking with a Staten Island man named Bobby Venaria, in which he began an operation moving large amounts of cocaine from Miami to New York. And in December of 96, the DEA busted one of these moves, and Venaria held Frank responsible to the tune of $1 million. And then, coincidentally or not, in April 1997, well, tell us what happened, Francisco.
3: Yeah, I get back from one of my business trips and I have to do my, my due diligence every month, right? Check the bank records, reconcile accounts. And then I notice there's a million dollars missing from the jumbo money market. So, of course, I, I immediately go to the bank and go, hey, what happened here? And they say, well, George pulled that money out, went to George and failed and said, why did you do that? And they just looked at me and they said, we don't have to tell you anything we're two shareholders and we can do anything we want. So of course I call my father up. He's on a business trip and I tell him what goes on. He calls them. They tell him the same thing. My father comes back early from his business trip, confronts them with the corporate attorney and the corporate accountant, basically says to them, you guys got to return that money. You can't do this. This is embezzlement. This is fraud. And they said, no, it's two against one. So they said, all right, well then I got to sue you. And it didn't make any sense. We're doing incredible. Our reputation in the industry is at its highest. It didn't make any sense until later with what this million dollars meant, obviously, to Felice to save his son's life.
0: But at the time, there was just no reasoning behind it. So Nelson sued Dasso and Gonzalves, who then demoted Nelson from president to general manager, removed his access to accounting, and changed the locks on the building. So Nelson quit. Now, this brings us to December 3rd, 1997. Frank Dosso, George Gonzalez, Diane Patiso, and George Patiso were shot and killed at the Erie Manufacturing Plant in Bartow, Florida. Diane Patiso was Phil Dosso's daughter, but she was also an assistant state's attorney, get that? And that evening, she went to pick up her brother Frank and her husband, George Patiso, at the factory to go back home for a family birthday party. Talk about wrong place, wrong time. And it looks like she may have walked in on something terrible that was about to go down and got pulled, tragically got pulled into it. So fill in the details here.
3: It appears the shooting started where Diane Patiso's body laid, and then the three men found in the one office, all killed with small caliber weapons, short range shots, execution style. It was actually termed as an an execution you know a hired hit type of murders
5: family members began calling Frank Dosso did not get an answer so Phil Dosso and his wife Nicoletto drove to the plant Phil stayed in the car sending his wife in the front door of the facility when she went into the front door of the facility and immediately saw the body of her daughter Diane she started screaming Phil left the car called 911, and ran into the building. And he ran past his daughter and into Frank's office. Nicoletta moved her daughter's body, cradling her or holding her. Phil tracked bloody footprints into Frank's office, and the other three people were found at Frank's office. Blood splatter evidence shows that George Batista was actually shot at least one time in a different part of the facility before he was brought into Frank's office and executed.
0: When officers arrived that evening, they found 14 shell casings, eleven from a twenty-two-caliber weapon, one from a thirty-two, which was pulled from Diane, and two from a thirty-caliber rifle in Frank's arm. Now, all of the victims had been shot in the head with .22 caliber bullets execution style, and the murder weapons were never located. Now, the crime scene provided no clear physical evidence to link anyone to the crime, let alone Nelson. Although, relatives of the victims immediately pointed fingers at Nelson because of all the bad blood and the current litigation. Now, there were some shoe prints that didn't match the Dasso's or the victims, But no fingerprints or biological evidence from anyone but the victims was present, which makes it sound an awful lot like a professional hit. As we go through the evidence from the crime scene, it strains the imagination to think that one single person could have carried out this awful crime as the state eventually contended.
5: These four people, according to blood splatter evidence, were shot at three different locations in this facility. So you've got one guy running around shooting people in different locations, moving at least one wounded person from one location to another where the final execution took place, and killing the assistant state attorney, Diane, in a completely different location. Now, at least two guns were clearly used in this, and the evidence suggests that there was three. Well, one of them is a long rifle two of them are handguns. and Unless Serrano grew an extra arm, one person cannot manage three weapons and four people. So this is significant evidence that shows that there were two shooters involved. Then you start to talk about all the blood that this would have created. When the deceased were discovered, some of the family members actually walked in the blood and there were bloody footprints by them later matched up to their shoes yet no blood was ever found on anything belonging to nelson serrano
0: yeah and we'll talk later about the prosecution's crazy theory that nelson drove a rental car to and from airports to make flights in an unbelievably tight travel itinerary yet where's the blood evidence in the alleged rental car his body and clothing. Would have been covered in blood if he shot four people, right? Where did he manage to stop and rinse off all of this blood evidence? They never answered that question. We'll come back to the state's impossible theory in a minute. But first, let's talk about the eyewitnesses. Because again, this is another super strong indication that Nelson Serrano did not commit this crime. Now, eyewitnesses said there were several Latin or Asian men in their 20s and 30s at the scene. And a man named John Purvis, who worked across the street from the factory, said that when he left work that day, he noticed a beige luxury vehicle, perhaps a Cadillac, parked next to Erie's main entrance. And he saw a man on the side of the road lighting a cigarette.
3: When Purvis comes out of the driveway of where he works, his car is pointing right at Erie Manufacturing. And that's where he sees this young guy who's well-dressed, right? He's got a blazer, he's got a sweater vest on, and the whole thing, which is not common in rural Bartow. So that stood out. And then he sees that this kid is trying to light a cigarette when it's windy. He's so close to him that he's able to see that he's got a Zippo-type lighter and that it's silver, and that he's lighting a cigarette. And he's able to tell you that he's got jet black hair.
0: Which doesn't sound like a description of Nelson, who was nearly 60 years old at that point and well-known to smoke a pipe, not cigarettes. But despite the lack of evidence, Nelson and Francisco continued to be targeted and thoroughly investigated, even harassed. Officers searched Nelson's house, where several guns were found. After all, Nelson did collect guns. However, none of Nelson's guns matched the murder weapons. And a paraffin test showed conclusively that Nelson had not fired a weapon. Now... Let me not leave out the complicity of the media in this slow-moving disaster, right? Because the media ran with the story of Nelson as the prime suspect, always displaying his picture when covering the story and referring to him as, quote, the Mexican, which is like tff, any old brown country will do, right? I mean, oi. And Francisco, if I'm understanding this correctly, they were targeting you at the time as well as your dad, right?
3: Yeah. We realized that because I was suing the company, basically George and Phil, for breach of contract for my employment agreement, and my father was suing them for the money they took, that you know they would want to look at us. So from day one, we cooperated. When they asked to do a paraffin test on me, I didn't have a problem with it you know, and was looking to help. And so my father came back early from his business trip just so he can come in and see what he could help with. And this is the way we were until they started targeting us and making our lives miserable. The searches in my father's home, the tapping of his phones and of our emails and and the way they went after all our friends. It was just crazy. Can't even believe it. it really happened.
0: This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and is making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where we work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG pro bono program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. Meanwhile, investigators received an eyewitness account that should have busted this case wide open and tied together all of the loose threads. And of course, I'm referring to the statements from Robert Fowler. In 1998, a man named Robert Fowler was in jail on unrelated charges and reached out to police with information about this crime, looking for leniency in his own case. Now, normally, jailhouse informants are not to be believed, unless what they're saying is corroborated by the physical evidence. And in this case, it was. Like Frank Dasso, Robert Fowler worked for Bobby Veneria, the Staten Island drug dealer. In 1997, the DEA busted Frank's trafficking operation for the second time. Fowler said that, that after this, Veneria was done with Frank Dasso and sent two hitmen, Anton and a guy named Benny Asprins. You can't make those names up. He sent these guys to Florida to kill Frank. Now, according to Mr. Fowler, the hitmen found Frank at Erie. They had two lookouts. They confronted the group and demanded that Frank come with them. Diane Patisa was there and identified herself as an assistant state's attorney and told them to leave. And that's when the shooting started. Diane was killed. The men scattered. George was shot somewhere else in the factory. And then the three men were corralled into the office where they were killed, execution style. That's the statement from Mr. Fowler. And it makes sense. It's the first thing we've heard that actually makes sense. The work was done for them at this point. And it's not like Fowler is trying to help the Serranos. He doesn't even know the Serranos. He was just trying to help himself. And you don't just make up information that matches the crime scene to a T unless law enforcement fed you that information. But they hadn't. Because if they had, investigators wouldn't have ignored Fowler's statement and instead let the case go cold. Now, Eventually, in 2000, your dad did what he had always planned to do, from my understanding, which was to retire to Ecuador after a a life well lived, right? And that's where this story of Nelson Serrano should have ended, peacefully back at home in Ecuador.
5: It's important to note that Nelson has dual citizenship. He has natural citizenship of Ecuador, and he was a naturalized citizen of the United States. He liquidated business interests, etc., and moved to Ecuador, the place of his birth. This was later mischaracterized at trial as him fleeing to Ecuador to avoid prosecution, but there was no reason for him to believe that he was still a suspect in this crime when he moved back to Ecuador.
0: Right, because they had no evidence against it. But back in Bartow, Florida, people were upset that no perpetrator had been found for this crime. After all, the local media had held up your father's picture and told the public for years that the, quote, Mexican, the Mexican did it. And so on May 17th, 2001, Nelson Serrano was indicted on four counts of first degree murder and his extradition was requested from Ecuador.
5: So, at that point, Tommy Ray, who's the investigating agent in this case, and Assistant State Attorney Paul Wallace traveled to Ecuador, and arguably, they're going to Ecuador to seek Nelson Serrano's extradition. They discovered Ecuador, under no circumstances, would extradite Mr. Serrano if he was going to be facing the death penalty. Additionally, Ecuador requested information about the particulars of the evidence that would show Nelson Serrano was involved in this before they would extradite him. At that point, Wallace and Ray pretty much broke off any attempt to extradite Mr. Serrano legally. Instead, according to Tommy Ray's own testimony, they came into contact with someone who was associated with the American embassy in Ecuador, who had previously worked for the DEA. And he connected Tommy Ray to some Ecuadorian police officers that he had worked with while he was with the DEA. Some money exchanged hands. Mr. Ray says that was for expenses only. But the upshot of that was that Nelson was snatched up off of the street, taken before a sham extradition hearing on the theory that he was not an Ecuadorian citizen, which was untrue. The sham proceeding took about 15 minutes, and then they took him from that place, stuck him in a dog kennel where he spent the night, and then he was taken in handcuffs, placed on a plane, and flown back to Florida. The date of the
3: kidnapping was August 30th, 2002, and then the trial didn't happen until late 2006. So he spent four years in a county jail in Polk County. You won't even imagine the kind of torture that he went through. 286 of those days he spent in solitary confinement, naked, with the air conditioning being blown, full ice cold, stadium lights on 24 hours a day. He wasn't allowed to sleep, eat, and his walls were covered in human excrement that entire time.
0: There just seems to be no bottom to this, you know? But then comes the trial. So Robert Fowler's statement was withheld by the prosecution until five days before trial in 2006, at which time the statement was downplayed. Now, it's important to remember that none of the witnesses called the trial actually witnessed the murder. And the state brought up the person seen lighting the cigarette outside the building that day of the murder, trying to suggest that it was Nelson. John Purvis was the witness that saw
5: him, and he gave them a sketch. First of all, Nelson Serrano did not smoke cigarettes. He smoked a pipe, which everyone knew. So the state actually mischaracterized his testimony from that he was lighting a cigarette and he clearly saw a cigarette, that it appeared that he was lighting a cigarette. The other thing that they did is instead of submitting this composite sketch to the jury in its original form, they reworked the PDF so that it changed the look of the composite sketch. We have both the original composite sketch and we have the reworked one. The original sketch, which appeared to be a much younger, thinner person, didn't look anything like Nelson Serrano, changed to a heavier type look, which is more consistent with the way Nelson looked at trial. So that was highly disturbing. There's no way that whoever introduced that piece of evidence did not know that this had been altered.
0: They also outfitted this composite sketch with the kind of glasses Nelson was known to wear. It's just unbelievable. I mean, and what about the firearms evidence from the scene?
5: I think the most significant thing, according to the autopsies, there were four people and there were a total of 14 gunshot wounds. Now, the police claimed a trial, but they only found 12 casings. That really isn't true because they ignored the fact that 12 casings were found at one point in time and two other 30 caliber casings were found on a pallet that had been moved. But at the time of the murders, this pallet would have been lined up with one of the hallways where one of the deceased was shot. Frank's autopsy showed that there were what they described as through-and-through wounds. The state attempted to say that one single projectile made these through-and-through wounds, which is sort of a torturous way to try and explain too many wounds and not enough casings. But not even the medical examiner who testified was willing to adopt that. We did discover, as we reviewed the evidence in this case, that these 2 .30-caliber casings had been marked for identification, but never entered into evidence by
0: the state. Now, there's also this story with the chair in his office. Tell us about that.
5: They tried to bring in a footprint on a chair, saying it was consistent with Nelson Serrano it was the wrong shoe size for one thing, but basically if you stop and think about what's going on, the state's theory is there's a single shooter who is managing four people. But at some point while these four people were inside the manufacturing facility, Serrano unarmed would have to go into his old office, stand on this chair, remove a ceiling tile, and recover a gun that the prosecution claimed that he had secreted back when he was an employee there before any dispute ever happened and before he was cast out of the company. Why he would have a gun hidden in the ceiling of his office at that point in time was never explained, but that was their theory, because someone had seen him do something with that ceiling tile on a previous occasion, we don't know what according to that witness and on another occasion he was seen with a gun at the facility that actually was explained because employees used to shoot target practice behind the facility in a makeshift shooting range and several people participated in that including the dossos so there wasn't anything unusual about the fact that someone might bring a gun to the facility for use at this makeshift shooting range
0: and let's talk about Nelson's alibi here, because we know he was on a business trip from December 2nd to the 4th, first in Washington, D.C., followed by Atlanta, 500 miles away from the crime scene, which, of course, was in Bartow, Florida. And the prosecution came up with a fairy tale story to try to shoehorn in how he could have, well, been in both places at the same time, pretty much. Here was their theory of how he committed these murders. So... They knew, and we know, that Nelson was seen on camera in Atlanta on December 3rd at his hotel at 12.19 p.m. And then again, less than 10 hours later, at 10.17 p.m., wearing the exact same clothes in both instances. Now, the state's theory was that in those 10 hours, Nelson made an unbelievable round-trip journey from Atlanta to Bartow, in which he would have flown from Atlanta to Orlando, picked up a rental car around rush hour, and we all know what that's like, 3.49 p.m., and left for the factory in Barto, which is an 80-mile drive that typically takes 90 minutes or even longer. So at the earliest, he would have arrived around 5.19 p.m., but probably much later. The time of the murders was
5: after normal working hours of the business. In order to believe that Nelson flew down from Atlanta and committed these murders you would have to believe that he did that on a leap of faith with no knowledge that any of his targets would even be on the scene at the time that he would have arrived he would have had to believe that someone was willing to let him in to a building that he had been denied access to on multiple occasions and every employee had been told to keep him out of the building
0: right so he went to a place where he was not welcome to which he had no keys He somehow gained access without leaving any signs of a break-in. With all of his old co-workers there, he was given plenty of time and space to go to his old office, which was now Frank Daso's new office, to retrieve a gun from the ceiling tiles and begin a killing spree that involved three separate guns, starting with Diane in the hallway, then chasing the other three around. And somehow he was able, all by himself, to corral three men into Frank's office where he shot them all, execution style sorry about this but get the fuck out of here with this story now it continues to get worse and then according to this cockamamie theory he would have had to find time and a place to clean himself up and get rid of his bloody clothing and then of course buy the matching clothing right he would have to buy the same exact set of clothes because we know he was wearing the same clothes on both ends of this then drive an hour to tampa drop off the rental car while leaving no blood evidence, and fly back to Atlanta to be back in his hotel again on camera by 10.17 p.m.
5: The timeline that the state presented at trial was questionable at best. Everything had to click perfectly. There could not be any delays. Well, one of the things that they kept from the jury is that there actually was a delay in one of the flights that they claimed Nelson took. And instead of presenting the actual arrival time of that flight to the jury, they instead presented to the jury evidence of when the flight was supposed to arrive. So this is really questionable
0: activity on the part of the state. And according to the closing argument, the plane landed at 9.42, but we know that the flight actually landed at 9.54 p.m. Either way, and don't forget, the the government claimed he was in row 30. (laughs) If you know how long it takes to get out of row 30 to the front of the airplane, even if he was in first class in the front seat, this would have been impossible. But either way, getting to the hotel 23 minutes later, getting through a one well, of the busiest airports in the world, right? at the airport. And getting to the hotel 23 minutes later at exactly 10, 17 p.m. in order to be seen on camera again wearing the same clothes that he was wearing in the morning. But miraculously with no blood on them. I don't care who the hell you are. No airline I've ever flown D planes that efficiently. It's impossible, okay? Now, there's also no evidence of Nelson at any of the three airports. No video, no witnesses, no nothing. Now, this round-trip journey has been attempted and failed on multiple occasions. It is simply not possible. If this were an Olympic event, near 60-year-old Nelson would have won gold where everyone else failed to finish. And the state goes further down this monstrously ridiculous and sinister path claiming Nelson flew under two different aliases, Juan Agassio and John White. And they needed something to hold this pile of horseshit together, so they came up with two pieces of false evidence. One, the coerced statement from his nephew, Alvaro Peña Herrera, saying that Nelson had rented a car from him out of Orlando in order to commit the murders.
3: Álvaro Peñarera, which is a distant nephew of my father, his statement to the jury was that he had rented a car, a teal-colored Nissan, at Orlando Airport for my father or a friend of my father's to use on December 3rd. Once he finished with his testimony and through counter cross-examination, he does admit that that wasn't his original story and that the reason he's saying what he's saying now is because the police badgered him so much, these are his words, and they threatened him. They basically said to him, we're either going to convict you or we're going to convict Nelson Serrano for these murders. And so he testifies on the stand in front of the jury that he finally decided, I'll say whatever the police want me to say, and that's what I'm saying today. And so he admits to basically changing his testimony to match what the cops want him to say in front of the jury. And then when they talk about the $100,000 reward he doesn't deny taking that money, saying that, you know what, anybody can use $100,000. And so we felt, all right, his testimony was done.
0: Now for the second piece of false evidence. They claimed that they found exactly half of Nelson's right index fingerprint on one parking ticket from the Orlando Airport parking garage and the exact other half of the same fingerprint on another ticket.
3: The state calls up their own expert and in cross exam, They ask him, do you think these fingerprints are legit or do you think they were planted? He says, well, I don't have the science to tell you that they're planted because I don't have the fingerprints. Those parking tickets and those fingerprints have been destroyed when they used the chemicals to lift the prints. He never saw the real tickets or the real fingerprints. He only saw a picture of them. Then he goes on to say, I find these things very suspicious and they're for four reasons. One, it's his right finger. So you're telling me that instead of using your left finger, which is when you go to grab a parking stop, you're driving, you reach out with your left hand and you pull that ticket out. Why is it his right hand? Second, there's no other fingerprints on it. When you go to pull your ticket out, you use your thumb and press down and you pull it out. And then the teller, when you give it to them, they've got to swipe it. So their fingerprint should be on it. Nothing. Third is that exactly half of that fingerprint was on the other parking ticket from November 23rd. So we're talking two weeks prior. And he noted that if you took a solid fingerprint, cut it in half, each half was on each ticket. He goes, that's completely odd. And there's no other smudges or fingerprints on the other ticket either. And then fourth, if you put a fingerprint, no matter how you try, you cannot make a straight edge on a fingerprint. And he actually put his finger on the water glass in front of him. He goes, it's just impossible. So for those four reasons, these fingerprints are suspicious to me. And so we thought, oh, well, the fingerprint evidence is done. And so what did the
0: defense do with all of this? I mean, did they do anything at all?
3: I'm ashamed to tell you guys this because I kicked myself left and right for allowing the defense attorneys to convince us not to present a defense. And you heard me right. They came to me and they said that the testimony from Alvaro is done. The fingerprint evidence is done. There's nothing to believe here. Reasonable doubt at the minimum exists everywhere. They're not going to convict your father. And if we don't present evidence, there was a law at the time in Florida, we get to talk twice. We get to give a closing argument and Then Florida can do what they want to do. And then we get to finish last. And at the end, I'm thinking, but what about the trip? Why can't we spend time on showing how impossible it is? So I go, why can't we do that? And he goes, because we want to have the end of it. And we took their advice because they were the experts. And so at the end of the day, how did this happen? And it was because this county had gone through nine years of two billboards with the pictures of the victims and the $100,000 reward plastered on it. Since 97 until 2005, the papers were always listing my father with a picture as the prime suspect, calling him the Mexican. And four of the jurors, when they interviewed them after the fact, they said, how did you do that? Why did you give him guilty? He goes, well, I kept waiting for them to show me why he's innocent. You can't make this stuff up.
1: The Following is a high five moment from high five I won. Yahoo! Private, put down your phone. This is the army. Sort! High five casino is a social casino. It's on your phone. goes wherever you go. I win three spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards, over 1200 games. I want again. Platoon, present cell phone. High five. High five. Casino. Casino. Win at high five casino.com. High five casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Would work prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details.
4: High five casino. on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com.
2: This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. My
3: poor mother, she never recovered. She still tests the floor that she's stepping on to make sure it doesn't get pulled away every day. You go through all those phases, right? Denial, anger, depression. How could you possibly convict somebody who the state didn't even prove was there? How do you say he's guilty? You know, you you pick up the pieces, and then you're like, what do I do next? How do I recover all this? In the attorneys, they look at you and they go, no, no, don't worry. We're going to appeal this. And it's like, who are you talking to? We're talking about years, not decades, that this thing is going to continue going, which it has. It's been 20 years.
0: And I want to talk for a second about the death penalty in Florida. Nelson's sentenced to death on a 9-3 to vote, which, again, is ridiculous. It's not even unanimous. But Florida and the death penalty, a very important fact that I hope people will remember is that at last count, Florida had executed 99 people since the reinstatement of the death penalty. During that same period of time, 31 people were found innocent on death row and freed. Now, That doesn't include, of course, the innocent people that Florida has executed, people like Jesse Teferro and the other innocent people that we know are languishing on death row in Florida who haven't been free, like Pablo Ibar or James Daly, Chris Maharaj, who is the subject of a fantastic podcast right now on Audible called Abuse of Power, season two. So it's not unreasonable to say that Florida is not even getting it right 60% of the time when it comes to sentencing people to death. Maybe we'll be generous and give the benefit of the doubt to the state of Florida and say, maybe they're getting it right 70% of the time. So I ask if someone is in favor of the death penalty, are you okay with 30% of the people being executed being innocent? And if not, then you cannot support the death penalty any longer because that is what's going on in Florida. And here we have today living proof of another innocent man languishing, experiencing torture day in and day out, being on death row, the notorious death row in the state of Florida for a crime he didn't commit. And how is he holding up? I
3: can't give you an answer to that, Jason. All I know is if he can survive being in a you know six foot by nine foot cell twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, not being able to go outside, constantly being harassed by these guards going through all this medical negligence and torture and he can still keep his mental integrity and still stay somewhat positive in all of this you know i can't express my admiration for what he's done to stay true i mean He's a stubborn guy. He's always said to me, I'm never going to let them win on this. I'm going to fight this till the end. I know the truth is going to come out. It's going to liberate me. It's going to liberate my name. But um the state of Florida isn't just hoping he dies. And I'll be very frank with this. They're making sure he dies. My father is an old man and he's been under medical care for the last 20 years under these contracted medical providers, which are nothing but shysters. He has three different medicines for his heart condition. He has osteoporosis. He's completely deaf. He needs hearing aids. He's already lost his eyesight in one eye, and now he's losing it in his one last good eye. They're not doing anything. Even though he was diagnosed in jail as being deaf, now they've said he's not deaf anymore, and they're not giving him his hearing aids. He hasn't had teeth to chew on, and they don't give him dentures. He's saving the teeth that have fallen out. And every morning, he pulls string out of his uniform and he ties his teeth together so he can chew. And then at night, before he goes to sleep, he breaks the string, takes his teeth, puts it in his pocket so he doesn't swallow it at night, so he can redo that the next day. He suffers from a sciatic condition. They don't give him painkillers for that. Then he's got three different heart medications, which twice in the last 18 months, they took away from him for six weeks at a time. He said his heart was going so crazy that he didn't know if he was going to wake up. He didn't know if the heart was going to explode. And this is how he lived for those six weeks until they gave him his medication back. You can't be taking heart medication for 20 years and then go cold turkey for six weeks. So they're attempting to kill him in doing all these things. And then what do they do? They take him to the doctor. They make him sit in an office for six hours. They make him sign something that says he was attended by a doctor and he never was. You know, the guards are sitting there telling him, you're going to lose your eyesight. You're going to be completely blind and completely deaf. And you're never going to know who comes at you or who's doing what to you. That's what we're going to do to you. He's been diagnosed for a hip replacement. They won't give it to him. And it's excruciating. You can't walk. You can't lie down. You can't stand. You can't sit for too long. Right? So I talk to them. I go, he needs to get a hip replacement. Well, we're not going to do that. That's way too much money. And I go, all right. Well, then let me raise some money and let me do it. Go, no, no, no. You can't pay for that. And I go, you got to be kidding me. He needs it. He's already been diagnosed by your own doctor. And he goes, well, he's in jail. He's going to get killed sooner or later. So we're not going to spend the money. That's what they say to me. That's what they say to him. Lawsuits have been filed against the Department of Corrections of the state of Florida. They have lost twice for not observing the American Disabilities Act. And even till to this day, they're still not observing it despite the court orders for them to do so. And then on top of all of that, you know, the, the miscarriage of justice, all the medical neglect, the disgusting conditions. And two decades of nothing but misery. And this is what's also been going on for my mother. You know, here's my mother, since the conviction, completely insecure about the world around her, checking the ground beneath her every time she walks. And now, as we record this, I'm letting you all know that she passed away last Monday, February 7th, 2022. And she won't be around to see my father out. And my father wasn't able to leave the prison to be with her or to even come to the service.
0: Jesus, I'm so sorry. Um, I mean, I don't know how much a person can take. It's like out of a Greek tragedy or something. Like, I mean, it's more than anybody should ever go through. It already was. And now there's this. And I'm so sorry for you and your family and your dad's at this point. I mean, what can I say? Except he's one of the strongest people that I've ever heard of. To endure this and then still persevere and still keep the positive attitude that he has is inspiring to me. And I'm, I'm sure to just everyone who's ever come across him or his story. And so now we look at post-conviction, and so much of everything we've talked about has been brought up in post-conviction appeals, from the kidnapping in Ecuador to exculpatory evidence about the crime scene, prosecutorial misconduct, and inadequate defense at trial, but all of the appeals have so far been denied. But in May of 2017, a 4-3 decision of the Florida Supreme Court vacated Nelson Serrano's death sentence as a result of the Hearst decision, which rendered Florida's death penalty process unconstitutional, and declared that jurors must agree unanimously in their decision to recommend the death penalty. And remember, for Nelson, it was a 9-3 to decision back in 2006. So they sent this case back to the circuit court for resentencing, and they haven't actually done anything about it yet, right? Here we are all the way in 2022. What can be done? What are the prospects? This has caused a real outcry. I mean, huge organizations have weighed in on this, right?
5: Yes, Ecuador has weighed in significantly. The International Commission on Human Rights has weighed in significantly. Where we are right now is that the Supreme Court ordered a retrial on the sentencing aspect of the case. What I'm doing cannot actually find Nelson Serrano innocent. The federal appeals could actually overturn the guilt or innocence portion of the case. So that's why it's very important to get the case to where Bruce Fletcher and Charles White uh, will be handling the the federal appeals. However, at every status hearing, the state attorney's office has continued to ask that the case be pushed down the road and predict that it may be two years before they will be ready to try this case. And that delay has caused actual prejudice to Mr. Serrano. We talked a little bit about some of the evidence that we've lost, the deterioration of DNA, the deterioration of the fingerprints. We've been robbed of the opportunity to bring in new experts who could really nail down the fact that that evidence is compelling for Mr. Serrano's innocence. We've lost witnesses. People have died since this case was even remanded on appeal and certainly many people have died since the original trial despite that significant prejudice we believe there still is plenty of compelling evidence to overturn the death penalty in this particular case under the current state of Florida law, it has to be a unanimous decision. So we only have to convince one person on that 12-person jury that this was a miscarriage of justice, and that person can keep the state of Florida from illegally executing Mr. Serrano. If we can get the death penalty overturned, there are a lot of options that open
0: up to undo this
5: injustice.
0: I mean, it sounds to me like the state of Florida is just stringing this damn thing out and hoping that he just passes away, you know, rather than have to dress their filthy laundry here. I hate to say, but that's really, I don't think that's a far-fetched theory at all. And so Francisco, for our audience listening today, if they're as horrified and disgusted by what's happened to your father as I am, and they want to do something to help, what would you like them to do?
3: Go to nelsonserrano.org, subscribe to our email list. You'll see a link to change.org. We just surpassed 54,000 supporters in this. Be one of them and then write your congressman, tweet, Instagram, say Governor DeSantis, Ashley Moody, look at this case for Nelson Serrano. We cannot let Florida continue to do this to an innocent man. He should be free. Follow the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, liberate Nelson Serrano immediately, approve his custody transfer to ecuador immediately and push for the resentencing hearing to happen now not in 2023 not at the end of 2022 that's what you can do i want to bring to everybody's attention to february 18th we're going to be in miami at florida international university on february 18th from 5 p.m to 7 p.m the cameras are going to be on telemundo univision cnn we've got a book that's come out of this. The government of Ecuador is going to be speaking there. We have four exonerees that are going to tell their story about what happened to them. And you will freak when you hear the similarities between what happened to my father. It's going to bring attention to the need of reform in our judicial system in the state of Florida. And we want you to be there. We want you to be part of it. So be aware that this is going to happen February 18th. You'll see it on social media all over. Support us to get
0: the word out please tell your dad we're all thinking of him and we all wish that we could open those doors right now this minute and whisk him out of there and the closing of our show is always i think the most important part it's called closing arguments and it works like this first of all I'm going to thank each of you for being here, taking your time and sharing this incredible story. And so now Closing Arguments works like this. I'm going to turn my microphone off, sit back in my chair and close my eyes and just listen to anything else you guys want to share. Greg, let's start with you and then you can just pass the mic to Francisco and he can close it out and that's how we'll end the show.
5: Well, I'd like to start with justice delayed is justice denied. We believe absolutely that if we can get this case back before a jury, we can show that Nelson Serrano was wrongfully convicted and is not guilty of this crime. I would point out that it's very unusual for a defense attorney to take the tactic in a resentencing that his client is not guilty because he's already had another jury determine his guilt, and now we're looking for mitigating factors as to why he should not be executed. Well, the major mitigating factor in Mr. Serrano's case is he's innocent. There are others his age, his ill health, many, many mitigating factors. And we will present all of those to the jury as well. But the message that we believe will be compelling is the fact that Nelson Serrano is an innocent man. And Nelson Serrano has been 19 years on death row wrongfully. And this needs to change as soon as possible. And I believe that the state of Florida is aware of the fact that if we get a resentencing hearing, uh, that the likelihood is that the death sentence will be overturned. That's why we've seen unprecedented attempts to delay this process by the state attorney in this particular case. And that's why we filed an appeal with the Florida Supreme Court saying, these delays are illegal. They violate due process. And we believe the death penalty should be taken off the table simply because of the delay. But even if you're not willing to give us that step, then order the state to go forward immediately. We are ready to go to trial now. We want trial now. And we're hoping that we will get it as soon as possible. Thank you, Greg. And and Jason, You know,
3: I want to thank you for this opportunity to bring this story to light. It's so important that people understand that this is real. This is true these things are happening, not just in Florida, all over the country. These tactics that the police and the prosecutors and the judges use to convict the innocent for the sake of convicting somebody for these heinous crimes is going on and it continues to go on. It's serving their purpose and not society. You know, what it comes down to is action. One of the things that my father has always been saying, do what you can for me. We got to make sure this doesn't happen to anybody else. You think it's not going to happen to me. I don't get involved in those things. Well, You know, my dad wasn't either. Everything, what happened there, all comes down to this drug deal that we knew nothing about. And there he's been, 19 years on death row. Wrong place at the wrong time, you might think. But it's more than that, right? It's these prosecutors, these cops, these judges that look at this and say, well, we need to resolve this case and this is the easiest path This is the least amount of resistance that we're going to get to put somebody up. Almost every state has a law that says that even if the prosecutor intentionally manipulates the system or evidence or does anything to intentionally give somebody the death penalty when they knew that this guy was innocent, you can't civilly or criminally try them. Those are laws that we need to reverse. So if these are things you're committed to, you wanna do something about it, you can. It doesn't take a lot of time either, or effort, or money. You just need to be a part of it. Find the organization you want whether it's Floridians for the Alternative of Death Penalty, it's the Innocence Project, anything, contribute. Five bucks, right? Some time, say, hey, I, I want to help. How can I do that? You'll start being part of the solution. And believe me, we're getting there. The numbers are growing. We need more help to make this thing happen. Let's get Congress to pass laws. Conviction Integrity Units are huge. Huge amount of exonerations happen because of the Conviction Integrity Unit. Make them mandatory in wherever you live. Civil review boards over prosecutorial misconduct. There are things that we can do. It's great to do something about my father. We want that to happen. He's 83. He deserves to finish his life in Ecuador. We want to make that happen. But let's make sure this doesn't happen to anybody else. So join us. Join Wrongful Convictions, join Innocence Project, join all these other places that are doing things and help. And thank you. Thank you again for your time.
0: Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Justin Golden, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis. with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1.
4: your credit card should match your lifestyle at kemba financial credit union choose a card with benefits that work for you for a limited time all cards have two percent cash back on purchases and zero percent interest on balance transfers for a year apply at kemba.org restrictions apply offer ends June 30th 2024
2: trinity school of natural health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry